Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Herp History, Morelia Python Radio. And tonight we are talking with none other than Dr. Richard Ross. Uh, you may know him as the author of what we call, I guess, in our generation, well, the, Owen, of uh, Herp Keepers. We call the it the Blue Bible. Bible. But I'm finding out that it was originally the Black Bible. Well, maybe it's I the don't Black understand. Bible, <laughs> the Blue Bible. <laughs> <laughs> in, in Rob's case, it's a black, black blue, blue Bible, blue hybrid whatever, Bible. Whatever. You, Either you know. way, it's the Bible. Exactly. Either <laughs> way, it's the Bible. You need this to live. So. Yes, but I remember when I was when I when I first got in back into Python's back in the I guess in the the two thousands and and that book was uh, basically it helped me to be able to breed Python's. I mean, everything that I know about breeding Python's has come from this book, and I think. I, I would venture to say that I still believe that uh, that uh, it still holds weight today. Yeah. I mean, I still refer to it uh, from time to time uh, to uh, sort of get my bearings when I'm going into uh, a season where, I, where I'm breeding something that I've never bred before. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where I had a copy in college and then it, I lost it along the way. And then getting it back, like having yes. going to buy another copy, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, this was a good book, and then I'm reading through it. And I'm like, oh god, this is awesome because I, you know, it's so interesting. It makes when you say, when I had this book when I was in college, boy, that makes me feel. Old. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't say that again. I'll keep that to myself. But um, but it was one of those things where like I've been trying to breed white lips, timors, things like that, uh, and then uh, going through this, and I'm like, well, yeah, let's let's get into it. Let's see what happens, yeah. and then you get into it, and it's a great stepping stone to. To build a breeding project around so yeah i was i i recently got it back and have read it again and again and again so it really is That's helpful great. yeah so i guess i guess we're gonna go back to the beginning yeah um yeah like uh so like how you got your start in reptiles i mean what was it like back then to be into snakes and reptiles and you know how did you evolve uh in in your reptile keeping, it brings back in interesting memories. I grew up in the post war, uh, the post World War II suburbs of Long Island in uh, in a residential bedroom community, and there were no reptiles in Long Island. And I don't know where I acquired this fascination, this obsession with reptiles. I refer to it now as a bad gene, but <laughs> it, ever since I was very young, uh, I just loved reptiles. And the interesting thing in that post war period. Uh, Sigmund Freud's works were very popular and as you can imagine snakes had this phallic symbolism so my mom who was a big follower of Freud was very embarrassed that her son had, had the, was fascinated by these phallic symbols oh and, and, and both she and my dad kind of figured well they never talked about it they would they didn't want their friends to know and because somehow it was symbolic of, of, of phallic inadequacy so I, I was alone, and as I as I got older, um, my fascination just became more intense. And there were no reptiles really available; uh, shops didn't carry reptiles. But I discovered in a visit to the dentist's office that certain magazines carried classified ads for mail order 
animals like reptiles. Oh uh, the, the, fa the famous ones were Thompson's Wild Animal Farm, Quivira Specialties, Ray Singleton, uh, Tarpon Zoo. So the trip, the, the dreaded trip to the dentist office was, was made a lot more tolerable by being able to sort through these, these magazines. And you could buy anything. I mean, you could buy monkeys, possums, raccoons. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, they, they, sold, they sold, you could buy... Uh, they called them alligators, but they were a spectacle. Came in for six ninety five, and wait, wait, six dollars ninety five cents? <laughs> exactly. And and it was and it, you could buy. They were they were sent through the mail. Oh my god! So the, the, literally, eventually, when I became old enough and saved enough money to buy up, the postman postman would show up with a box, and there was a spectacle caiman or a snake. Uh, I didn't have my first snake until I was much older, and uh, it was. Shoveling, shoveling driveways in the winter and cutting grass in the summer, and my, uh, in order to save enough money, and my my first snake, I believe, was a black racer, and it came from Thompson Wild Animal Farm, and their their snakes were eighty cents a foot, almost all of them. You could buy pygmy rattlesnakes, uh, Western diamond, yeah, Eastern diamondbacks for for eighty cents a foot. Um, before I was actually able to to buy a snake i used to call these places and in those days of course there were no cell phones and and i discovered that you could i didn't want my parents to know that i was calling these places and i discovered that you could when you you got the operator on the phone you could give them a phony number and so i'd make my voice but i'd like to make the long distance phone call and bill bill it to another number and you you could do that and every once in a while an operator would get wise and Sonny, does you know your parents are does your parents know you're on the phone and I'd hang up because they had no way to, to trace it back. <laughs> but one day I had enough money, I ordered a black racer that was about oh maybe four five, four feet long and uh, sent the money. It was all just loose change and dollar bills to the Thompson Wild Animal Farm. Many years later, uh, my old friend Bill Thacker and I visited this place because it was one of those legendary places. It turns out that the Thompson Wild Animal Farm was actually a pig farm. And he had an abandoned swimming pool on the property. It was pretty much empty. And all the local kids, whenever they caught something, he'd throw it in the swimming pool. So if somebody ordered something, he'd go down there with a with a hook and pull out whatever was ordered and put it in a box and drop it in the mail. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so I, I bought this, this – uh, um, it was a black racer, and of course, my parents. I didn't want my parents to know. Well, my mom was really supportive. She thought, in the end, she thought, you know, let I'll encourage his his interests. You know, who knows where it'll lead him. But my dad was against it, so my dad kept fish, and and uh, so we had an empty fish tank in the garage, and I put the black racer in the fish tank, but I didn't want him to know, so I covered it over with a blanket. Oh no. <laughs> and and that, they had to kind of feed it secretly. Mm -hmm. And one day I went in the garage to look at it, and its eyes had turned white. And I said, oh, my God, it's gone blind because I've kept it in the dark. There, there were no books, so I uh -huh. had no idea that that simply meant it was in shed. So in panic, in panic okay. I called the Bronx Zoo. And I spoke to Herndon Dowling, who was the curator after Dittmar's, I think. And he explained to me very patiently that it was in shed. And it shed, it shed, and it was fine. But I, even in those days, I just didn't like the idea of having it in, in a barren cage. So I thought, well, I'm going to make a cage to keep it outside. So I built a, a framework mm. without a bottom, and I put it in the grass in the backyard with a rock on top, put the snake in there. Well, it 
within a day it had escaped and I never saw it again. So that, that was my first snake. And (laughs) so from there, you just, you now, now it became uh, an obsession or like how, how did it, how did it continue to grow? Well, I had to be satisfied with just reading price lists and you know, I had them okay. all memorized. I learned herpet, you know, I learned taxonomy from reading those price lists because a lot of the price lists had the scientific, the Latin names for them. Mm-hmm. But right. I wasn't really able to to uh, really start keeping snakes in a significant scale until after college. While I was in college, I just didn't have the time to, to keep snakes. And um, it, when I got into medical school, I began to really study snakes as because remember there was no hobby then mm-hmm. people right. just people didn't keep snakes if you kept snakes you were considered weird and you were on your own right. and, 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 and there was no way to communicate with other other kids so it wasn't until I I had gotten into college or high school in, uh, in medical school that I really began to think you know this is serious and and um, I began. I became interested in some of the medical aspects at the same time, but by that time, I was pretty much committed to pythons and boas. I'd kept all kinds of snakes, uh, or read about all kinds of snakes before then, but never. But for some reason, I became committed to pythons and boas. My um, my roommate in medical school had flunked out, and so I had the room to myself, <laughs> and I was beginning to get fascinated by the idea of of these uh, countries where snakes these exotic snakes were exported from like like singapore and thailand and i had a friend who owned a pet store and he explained to me that if i contacted the commercial attache of these countries they would give me lists of exporters of animals because that's what their job was so i wrote to the commercial attache for thailand and singapore and I wanted to get price lists. So I wrote to them and, and they sent me these price lists. And I looked at these things and it was incredible. I, I couldn't believe it. you could get reticulated pythons for $5, oh a blood python for 10 You could get tomistoma, uh, false gavials for $20, saltwater crocodiles. It was unbelievable. Wow. And, and uh, oh that was it. I mean, I was hooked when I saw those price lists. I, I, I just have to go. Well, I didn't have any money. My parents, of course, weren't going to. Pay, pay for my airfare to go to collect snakes and, and get snakes in Thailand. So I became a blood donor and a sperm donor to make extra money. And I, it was, so I finally, and, and I actually began importing snakes from these, from Bangkok, from the famous Friendship Trading Company and from uh, the, uh, the well-known dealer YL Co. in Singapore. And with Friendship Trading Company, you had to send money in advance. They, there was no credit, and if that's just the way they did it. With right. with Friendship Trading Company, you never knew what you were going to get. Uh, I would order three five-foot reticulated pythons, and I would get two ten-foot f- ferocious monsters. <laughs> <laughs> you just never knew. But from uh, from Co, you got pretty much what you ordered, and and blood pythons for 20 bucks and, and I, I had to miss them and I was living in in a in a rented apartment in Boston mm-hmm. and I, I bought a little kiddie pool a little wading pool oh, no. and I, I had to miss them and, and, and saltwater crocodiles in this thing it was wow. unbelievable and I started selling reptiles and and um, 
trying to make money to, to take another trip. Uh, I ended up going, I think I went to, uh, to Bangkok first and then to Singapore to visit uh, YL Co. And that sort of began the whole process of, of bringing in animals from overseas. And I was keeping some in the, in the, in the dormitory at medical school because we had to stay in the dormitory during our first year. And because my roommate had flunked out, I used his closet to keep the snakes. And I had uh, reticulated pythons hanging from the coat rack in his car. <laughs> and, and I was feeding them live mice and the other medical students would all come in and watch the snake, you know, constrict the live mice. That's and I got into eerily funny, familiar <laughs> to my college yeah. days. My roommate flunked out and then I got too many snakes because I filled his spot. Yep. Yeah, this That's sounds right. eerily familiar. So, Nobody to complain. Yeah. Well, when I finally got in my own place, it, it was different. And I tended not to keep uh, venomous reptiles for two reasons. One, I found that because most of my snakes were, were, were pythons or boas and they were harmless, I was taking too many chances reaching into a cage. The other, the final, the last straw was I had in, – in those days, you couldn't buy cages. Nobody made cages. So we had to – I had to make my own. And I discovered that in Chinatown, in Boston, a lot of the merchants were getting their shipments of produce in these big wooden boxes. So I'd walk along the streets in Chinatown and pick up a big wooden crate that looked like it would make a good cage. And I'd use screen to make, make the front of yeah. the cage because I had no way to make a glass glass cage. Right. So I had uh, three um, small rattlesnakes in one of these cages that I had made. And I, for some reason, I had that cage in the closet. I, and I threw in a mouse overnight. And the mouse was not, it was neither, neither killed nor eaten, but it did chew a hole through the screen. And I had to get up at like 5.30 in the morning when it was dark to show up at the medical school, at medical school. And I opened, I was in my underwear, and I opened the door of the closet, and these three rattlesnakes came piling out of the closet. I'm jumping around trying to avoid rattlesnakes in the dark. And I finally managed to catch them all, and I put them in the bathtub. And that was the last time, that was the last time I kept any venomous reptiles. (laughs) Oh, wow. It was around that time that I began to get interested in some of the the medical aspects of uh, keeping reptiles because often uh, snakes that came in were in poor health, just from poor shipping conditions. They had canker. They had pneumonia. And I found that uh, there was no such thing as reptile medicine. Nobody – there was nothing. Right. Uh, There were no books. There were no husbandry books. There was only Pope and, and, and Dittmar's. And so I was pretty much in, in, in unknown territory. So I discovered that the laboratory at the hospital was kind of interested in the idea of finding out what these snakes uh, were, were uh, carrying in their mouths. So I got them to do cultures for me for free and began to realize that snakes carried these very potentially lethal bacteria, at least in human medicine, they were quite deadly, pseudomonas and other gram-negative bacteria. So that kind of began my interest in, in, in studying the, the medical aspects of, uh, of reptile husbandry. Um, the other thing that was offered while I was in medical school was that you could take a semester abroad. And all of the other students went to English-speaking countries like England and Scotland and Ireland. Well, I went to the English-speaking country of Australia. 
I mean, <laughs> close enough English, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, I did a semester at the Royal Brisbane Children's Hospital. And, of course, spent most of the time looking for snakes wherever I could. I was in Brisbane in the city, but I discovered that there was a uh, – we'd call it a flea market every Saturday. And so I would go to the flea market, and there was a guy that showed up with snakes. So I bought a couple of diamond pythons and some carpet pythons from the guy. Well, I had no place to keep them, so I kept, just kept them in, in my suitcase in the, in, in, the, in the medical school because they were putting me up in the medical school. Uh, and I did the semester. They did the, the semester, and I still had these these poor snakes were in bags in my in my suitcases for weeks. But I wasn't going home quite yet. I was going off to New Guinea because while in medical school, I, I began to realize that anything that had to do with medicine kind of gave me an, a passport to any place in the world because all I had to do was offer to volunteer. So I had volunteered to work in a, in a hospital in the highlands in New Guinea. And of course, what I was after was green tree pythons. <laughs> and, and they were happy to have me as a volunteer. So I flew to New Guinea from Australia and spent another month volunteering at the hospital in the New Guinea highlands. And it turned out it wasn't really snake country. I didn't. I never did see any snakes there, but I had these diamond pythons and carpet pythons in my suitcase oh, the God. whole time. And so I finally made it back to the U.S. Uh, and remember, um, <laughs> the word customs brings back many memories. <laughs> <laughs> there was no custom. There was no, I mean, no, there were, there, there were, there was no customs when you, when you were importing, almost none. And, right. and going through customs, there was no Lacey Act. There was no uh, Endangered Species Act, uh, or I should say, there was no um, CITES. Lacey mm -hmm. Act had been written many years before, but it had been it, it it had it really was intended to protect to protect migratory birds, and it wasn't until many years later that it was sort of reinterpreted to uh, to deal with imports from overseas. But well, I would carry this, this I carried snakes in my handbags, and. I would come through customs and I open open the suitcase and say, I have snakes in here. And most of the time they'd say something like, oh, I hate snakes, get them out of here. Every once in a while, someone would want to see them, uh, which was fine. And years later, um, it produced a number of interesting situations. Um, because I eventually became one of the people that was known for bringing in reptiles, I, I somehow got added to the list of people that were not just let through casually. Years oh, later. God. Oh, I got you. So <laughs> okay. They would they and, flag you or, yeah, okay. Exactly, right. Yeah. So <clears throat> by that time, the laws changed and, they, and, and I really was very careful. And I was coming back from a trip somewhere overseas and I had a, um, a poster rolled up in a mailing tube. And the mailing tube was in my suitcase. So the customs inspector very politely said, uh, it says here that I'm supposed to search you carefully. And I said, that's perfectly fine. Uh, it's not a problem. So he starts going through the suitcase and he comes in this mailing tube. He says, oh my God, do you have a snake in there? <laughs> no, no, no. I do not have any snakes in my suitcases. But back, uh, when I came back from, from Australia, New Guinea, you know, I had – the snakes in the suitcases and i showed them to the to the inspector and it was it was perfectly fine wow 
So time, wow. time, times have changed a lot. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> wow. Diamond pythons, huh? Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so were you, were you building up your own collection of snakes at this time or are you just all, uh, or just selling them, like getting them in good health yeah. and then selling them? Well, uh, more or less both. Um, it wasn't until I actually had my own home and had had a place to put snakes that I started really making, gotcha. building up a collection. But by the time I after I finished my training in New York, I was at Bellevue as an intern. Oh, there's a story. Mm. You know, everything every story reminds me of another story. Good. <laughs> so I was an intern at Bellevue, and I was working on call every other night, which meant that when you were on call the weekend, you went into the hospital on Saturday morning. You worked all Saturday, all Saturday night, all Sunday, all Sunday night and all day Monday until you got off Monday at four. Wow. Okay. So um, I had gotten a carpet python from somebody, uh, a mail order snake, and it was um, it had canker when I got it. Mm. And strangely, at the, not strangely, at the time, no one knew what canker was. The only treatment that everybody recommended was Listerine antiseptic. Well, it turns out that the active ingredient in Listerine was alcohol, which is why it was so popular. Um but I had learned when I was in medical school that, that canker was actually caused by Pseudomonas, a, a, a pretty virulent bacteria. And I had a pretty good idea of how to treat it, but I didn't want to leave the snake at home for, uh, for the entire weekend until Monday night because I wanted to keep an eye on it. So I took it to the hospital with me. <laughs> <laughs> and we had, we had these little on-call rooms where you could sleep. There's a bed, a, a desk, and, and a dresser. And I had the snake in a bag, and um, I let, put it in, in one of the drawers in the dresser. So the next day, I'm working in the hospital. I get an announcement over the, over the loudspeaker. Dr. Richard Ross, are you one in the administration office? And, oh, my God, what's going on? Uh, so I showed up the administration office, and uh, an administrator says, "Dr. Ross, apparently you have a snake in your in your in your in your on call room." And I said, uh, "Yeah, um, I'm doing research Why? on this uh, bacterial disease." And I said, "I said, uh, do you mean that that cleaning lady that cleaned the room?" Was snooping through my 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 private effects, my 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 my, my personal effects. <laughs> it was I was trying to turn the tables, right? And, and he said, "Oh well, um, it seems like she was." And and you know, I said, "Well, it was carefully sealed in a bag where it had no way to escape and no access to it." Do you mean she opened my? My the, my the bag in my drawer in the in my, in the drawer. My was going through my personal effects. Well, uh, yes, uh, I guess she was, doctor. Just be sure it doesn't escape. And that was the end of that. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, great. Maybe it doesn't get out. <laughs> there God. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but at, at that point, uh, let's see. Oh, so at any rate, um, I moved to San Francisco, mm. and. Um, I rented a house out on the avenues in San Francisco, and out on the avenues, the houses have a little front yard, a little backyard, and then your, the two side walls share a common wall with, with uh, your neighbors. And the common wall in the basement wasn't finished. It was just, just framing. So I had built some large cages in the basement. I was that By that time, I had imported from Indonesia. and. Um, 
I had Maclos pythons and I had some other snakes that I had imported. And I also was raising mice in the basement. And I had a girlfriend spend the night and for some reason, I don't remember why, we decided her dog should be in the basement. So her dog spent the night in the basement, smelled the mice, jumped up on the counter, knocked the mice cage over, and all the mice got loose in the basement. Oh, no. And the, the framing on the wall was not solid. So the mice got into the neighbor's house. Mm. And <laughs> I came home from work, from the hospital, and there was a notice on my door that had been reported to the health department. Oh, and, I was in, <laughs> and I was instructed to call the health department. Well, it was it was Thursday, and I thought, oh boy, I'm going to leave this until Friday, late Friday, because I know they're not going to come out at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. The health inspectors are city of city employees, and they're not going to come out um, on on um, uh, Saturday or Sunday, and. By that time, I had met my good friend Tom Huff, uh, who was one of the founders of the Institute for Herpetological Research with me. And mm-hmm. I, I called Tom and I said, Tom, I got this situation. You got to give me a hand. I had to get all the snakes out of the house. And so we moved all the snakes to his, his place. And I put things in these big cages just to make them look like storage racks and cleaned up the whole house. And I had one big python that he couldn't take. It was about an eight-foot Burmese python. It was in a cage in the living room. So we put the put the cage on the floor, and I covered it with a blanket. That was the best I could do. <laughs> so it was like a couch? Yeah, that's like a coffee <laughs> table, whatever. Exactly, you get it exactly, exactly right. So I, 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 in the meantime, I'd, on Friday, at Friday at 4 o'clock, I'd called the health department, and they set up an inspection. Well, we're not, we can't come out now, and we don't work on Friday, Saturdays and Sundays, so we'll be out there Monday. So I said, that's fine, absolutely fine. So the guy came out, uh, showed up on Monday, walked through the house, and, of course, it was as clean as I could possibly make it. And uh, took about an hour, uh, and he said, well, Dr. Ross, you're not the best housekeeper I've seen. <laughs> and he turns around, he sits down on this couch. <laughs> <laughs> and he starts making notes. And he's, mov- <laughs> and he's moving his feet around. And as he's moving his legs around, he's moving this blanket. You know? <laughs> and I could look where I could see this huge python in there. And he's just moving his feet around and kicking the blanket around and making notes. Well, he said, well, Dr. Ross, uh, my, my work is done here. You're fine. He left us. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, you were sweating bullets. Yeah, that, is, that is insane. <laughs> my whole life passed before my Oh, my God. <laughs> That was, oh, that's uh, great. That was when I met Tom and and Brett Stearns and and uh, um, Bob Drews, and we founded the Institute for Herpetological Research in '76. And that by that time we had all developed a passion of captive breeding. Part of it was because I'd been overseas and seen the conditions that the animals were being kept in, and I'd been down to Florida enough time to visit the importers and see see them open boxes with dead animals and. It began to have an effect on me, and I and I began to realize that, you know, f- as far as they were concerned, um, you know, these dead animals were just, you know, just part of the overhead. And yeah. the other thing that I I I'd seen was that some lizard from Africa or or Asia could 
be caught by some kid and, and, and bought by an exporter for five cents and get shipped over to the U.S. to an animal importer for $2 and then be sold by the animal importer to a pet shop for $6 and then sold for $9.99 to some kid. And it was and, – and, you know, the mortality rate was outrageous. And that was sort of the beginning of, of the, the idea that there had to be a better way. And all of us had the passion for, 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 for captive breeding. Um, so that was when our organization was founded. And it was a nonprofit organization. And we, we basically felt that this was a legitimate uh, area of research just to, to try to understand captive breeding. So is that how you came with the what was it the Python breeding manual was in seventy eight right? Yeah, the first one was that soft cover book, right? Uh, and I, I had by that time I had rented a place for the reptiles, and uh, Brett Stearns, who his passion was tortoises, he was the first to breed uh, um, sulcata. Uh, Brett was over at the rented place where I was keeping the snakes and I was explaining to him what I was doing and, and um, I had um, had some breeding successes and just telling him all – and he said, you know, you should write a book. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it kind of hadn't occurred to me. So that book was a, a compilation of my early notes and early information that I've gotten from people. Um, I think that was the second book. The first book that I wrote was The Bacterial Diseases of Reptiles, their, diagnos- their Etiology, Diagnosis, and Treatment. And that book came about as a result of a study that I did on the bacteria, which I first started learning about when I was in medical school. And it's an interesting story. It turns out that reptiles all have these very uh, aggressive, dangerous bacteria in their mouths. And when I discovered that that's what was causing canker, I wondered whether those bacteria were unique to sick animals or whether they were also found in healthy animals. So I started doing pharyngeal cultures of healthy snakes that I had and found to my surprise that they all had those bacteria. In humans, those bacteria are very deadly. But here were normal, perfectly healthy uh, snakes that had those bacteria. So then I thought, I wonder if snakes that are freshly imported have those bacteria. So that meant a trip down to Florida where the, where the import industry was, and, and I had a number of friends uh, who were importing snakes in Florida. So I went down and cultured the mouths of snakes that were freshly unpacked to see if they had the same bacteria, and yes, they did. Fascinating. So then I thought, hmm, maybe the bacteria are picked up by the snakes when they're in the hands of collectors, and they're still not found in wild snakes. And the only way to know that was to go to Papua New Guinea and actually do the research in the field. So my old friend Jerry Marzak and I went to New Guinea and we uh, – I don't know how this was successful, but I put an ad. I was in uh, in San Francisco at the time and I put an ad in the paper and I said, I, we need a volunteer bacteriologist to come with us on this trip to New Guinea. And sure enough – Somebody volunteered. So the three of us went to New Guinea and we we had to get a permit. The project was to culture the mouths of snakes, to grow the bacteria, to isolate them, to bring them back to the U.S. where they could be identified and get them through customs somehow without some customs guys totally freaking out when they saw all these agar plates. <laughs> 
So we got a permit from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and they actually thought it was quite fascinating. The guy said, whew, why, what a fascinating thing to find the bacteria in the mouths of wild snakes. So we went to New Guinea. When we arrived, we were in Port Moresby, and we had to get the equipment there. And I had contacted the medical school, the New Guinea Medical College, mm. and arranged to pick up all the culture material, all the equipment you need, needed from them. And that that idea kind of raises some interesting questions. The New Guinea Medical College, what could they be learning there? And these are Melanesians who um, – basically have very limited education, if any at all. And it turned out that at the medical college, they were teaching them just basic first aid and how to treat the common diseases, leprosy and malaria, which were very, very common. And when they graduated, they got the title uh, in the New Guinea pidgin language of Dr. Boy, which <laughs> translates to Dr. Boy. So they weren't considered MDs, they were considered basically first aid workers, which was great. Okay. And I learned a, a fascinating thing about the, about the Melanesian culture. They have this very interesting tradition. You know, the villages are very small mm -hmm. and, and they're, they live at a subsistence level. So if somebody in the village did something totally horrible, totally violated some taboos, uh, looked cross-eyed at his neighbor's wife or took food that didn't belong to him, but something really, really terrible. The way they would resolve it was that person would change his name and give away everything he owned. So it's like filing for personal bankruptcy. Uh -huh. you, wow. are forgiven for, you are forgiven for everything you've done. You have a new name. You get to start over fresh. Oh, wow. Really fascinating. Yeah. Well, it has interesting ramifications. So the, um, the director of the medical college told me that cultural uh, practice, and he said, we had this interesting phenomenon here. One of our kids flunked out. So okay. the next semester started, and he, op he steps up in the classroom for the first day, and there's the same kid. <laughs> so he, he calls him by his name, and the kid just ignores it. <laughs> so he calls him again, and, and the kid ignores it. So he goes over to him, and he says, um, I'm sorry, so-and-so calls him by his name, but you failed. You you can't come back. And he says, it's not me. <laughs> that was the other guy. I'm, I'm, yeah, okay. That, that was guy. He failed. Oh, wow. He failed. I'm I a new guy. Yeah. I asked a new guy, right. Well, that one didn't work. Oh. But at any rate, it was quite interesting. And um, we had the same situation. We were we went to uh, a mountainous uh, uh, area, uh, uh, a village called Wow, W-A-U. And there was a research field station there. So we stayed there for a couple of weeks. And uh, the director of the field station was um, was American. And he said he had a similar situation one day. He handed out the paychecks to these guys or their pay actually was in cash in an envelope uh, once every week. And he, all the guys are gathered around and, and, and um, he starts calling out their names and he calls out one guy's name and the guy's right in front of him, but he doesn't come up, doesn't raise his hand. And he goes over to me, he says, here's your pay. He says, that's not me. He couldn't take it. He, 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 he had to be rehired with a new name. Oh my God. <laughs> That's a logistical nightmare. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. So we spent two weeks there, and the uh, the uh, local people, the uh, indigenous people, 
the, the project was to catch snakes, have them bring them to us, take a culture and release a snake. So they did. We were paying $2 each for condor pythons. Mm. And um, they were and then we'd release them. And after a few days, we had this funny feeling that some of the snakes that we were seeing, we'd seen before. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we clipped a, a, a belly scale on a couple of them and we, we, we went out and into the bush to release him. And we kind of watched around and sure enough, one of these guys was following us. <laughs> yeah. So yes. we turn the snakes loose and the next day we come back to the lab and the, and this guy shows up with these snakes, you know, and we look there, they have the clip belly scales. Yep. So we very, very politely explained to him that, uh, no, that's no bueno. You know, you kind of can't do that. And he was absolutely astonished that that, Somehow we were able to identify that, and, <laughs> they, and they had one Boland's python oh. at the time, and even still is an exceptionally rare snake. And the fact that we paid two bucks for this thing and had to turn it loose was just <laughs> oh, oh, wow. we, well, we did the cheapest Boland's ever. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So that was the that information. That was the last, but the the, the answer is yes. Those wild caught snakes have that same bacteria in their mouths, so they are what's known as facultative pathogens, meaning that if the snake is stressed or injured, they they the, the snake becomes sick. But as long as the snake is not stressed or injured, they, they do no harm. So that was fascinating to learn. Once I knew what the bacteria was, I knew how to treat the disease because mm -hmm. there – and those pathogens are very lethal in humans and there are antibiotics that are useful. So I started using those antibiotics on the snakes and I was using human dosage. Nobody knew anything about how to treat them. So right. I discovered I discovered, and the other thing that would happen was that imported snakes would sometimes get pneumonia from being in the cold. Mm -hmm. And so I treated the first snake with that antibiotic, which was gentamicin. And unbelievably, within 48 hours, it was totally, totally well and began eating like within a day or two. And I said, oh, my, I'm a miracle worker. This is incredible. <laughs> I'm, I'm a genius. <laughs> and... So and then I started treating other snakes, and it was miraculous. I mean, they they, they just got better in days, as opposed wow. to just suffering and lingering, and they, you know, with no treatment, and eventually dying. So then this mysterious thing happened. Four or five weeks later, even six weeks later, the snakes would stop eating, and then they died. And it absolutely baffled me until I finally began to realize that the medications in that in that category of of antibiotics are nephrotoxic toxic to the kidneys and snakes have very primitive kidneys you know they don't they don't excrete a liquid urine they excrete that urate white uric acid crystals right right well it turned out that what i was giving them was a lethal dose it, it basically destroyed their kidneys but renal failure in snakes because they don't excrete liquid urine comes on very slowly in in mammals because you have to eliminate that the, the, the water and the dissolved uh, ammonia, uh, renal failure progresses pretty rapidly. Mm -hmm. But in snakes, it takes weeks and weeks and weeks. So I finally realized after six weeks or more that I was killing him with that dosage. So then I modified the dosage and finally after a little trial and error and a few more dead snakes, I was able to pinpoint the dosage. Wow. But, but that was the first book. The second book was that Python, the Python breeding manual. 
Hey, when you when you did the Python breeding manual, had you bred multiple species? Was there a specific species that you had bred at that point, or? Uh, good question. I think let's see if I can get the dates right. Um, by that time, well, um, the first the first snake that I bred was the Maclots python, and that's a great story. Um, every everything reminds me of a story. So I was still living out in the out in the avenues, and I had all these snake cages in the basement. I'd already been turned into the Department of Health, and I'd escaped that. Um, but back then, of course, there was no breeding, and there was there was a group of us who were python and boa aficionados, and we would talk to each other late at night uh, because the cell the phone rates were, were lower at night. So we'd call each other late at night. There was Dick Gergen, it was Bill Page, Tom Widener. Um, we would we'd talk for hours starting at 11, 11.01 when the rates were down, and. We, we all felt that the information should be shared. There were guys that we suspected were giving out uh, inaccurate information, trying to sabotage us. Oh, yeah, you can incubate those eggs at 90 degrees or 95 degrees, and they'll hatch in two weeks. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so, but um, I had built these cages in the basement, and at that point, we were all keeping the snakes warm all the time because, hey, they're tropical snakes. They need warm weather. They need – we kept them in the 80s, and they thrived. They looked great. They ate, and they grew, but they didn't breed, and people were going nuts trying to – people were using ultraviolet lights. They were calculating uh, uh, convoluted uh, day and night cycles using timers to turn the lights on and to turn the lights off, trying to match uh, the day and night cycles in South America or New Guinea, doing vitamins, supplements, anything to get them to breed. And and nobody was having any success. And one day – it was a Saturday morning. I was on call at the weekend, and I was fooling around with the wiring in the in the cage, in the in the system that I built, and I shorted something out, and all of all the lights went out, and I didn't have any time to to solve the problem. I had to be at the hospital, and it was a dead of winter, and it got down into the 40s, and I said, "Oh my God, these things are all going to catch pneumonia. I'm not going to be back till Monday." So I came in Monday, and the temperatures had gotten in, in the basement down into the 60s. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be grim. Were, I walked in there, and the Maclots pythons were mating. <laughs> oh, that wow. Good. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, um, I don't believe it. It's an epiphany. That's what was missing. They need that temperature drop. They need to get warmer in the day and colder at night, and that's what was missing. And I didn't have any – you know, I, I – didn't know what to do next. I didn't know how long the gestation period was. I had no idea how to incubate the eggs. So the eggs were, were laid two months later. And I thought, I'm going to figure this out. So I took the eggs from the female and and I made a primitive incubator. And the incubator was nothing more than a fish tank with a, with a, with a, a, a heat strip under one corner. Okay. And I was trying to keep an eye on the temperature. And I wa- and and let's see, was that – I think I left – no, that was that's correct. I took the eggs away and and I was trying to keep an eye on the temperature. I was just guessing 85 degrees and something in that range. Mm-hmm. And in the end, about half of them hatched. And that was the first captive breeding. I actually by that time our organization had joined the AZA and I was awarded the first captive breeder certificate 
for for the Maclots Python. Oh God, awesome! <laughs> That's awesome. And, Great. And, and I, I actually wrote an article about it, and strangely, some newspaper or magazine in England picked up the article, and they wrote. Uh, uh, I I'm not sure what. Somebody clipped the article out and sent it to me. A zoo, a, a zoo administrator had seen the article and clipped it out and sent it to me. So I don't know where it appeared. But the caption, the title of the article was, snakes have got Freud all wrong. And the article went on to say that, according to, to Freud, because snakes are phallic symbols, they want to breed all the time. But that's wrong. They need to have the lights out and the temperature down in order to breed. So that was sort of the beginning of the whole concept that – in, in some way, that the temperatures were, were, were critical. And after that, it was probably, oh, a year or so after that that I got the idea of writing a real book. And I had bred, let me think of it, I, I, I had probably bred, bred maybe five or six species of Burmese, Maclots. I bred the, the Alberts pythons next. And only two of them hatched, oh. and I had pic- pictures of them coming out. At that time, nobody ha- – I didn't have any incubators. I was just trying to wing it. And I received the Bean Award for that hat for that, for that captive breeding. That's the most prestigious award that the AZA gives, and named after Edwin H. Bean. And each year, they give one award in each category, reptiles, birds, amphibians, et cetera, et cetera. So I received the Bean Award for the, the white lip python being bred. And, of course, there was no way to communicate except by mail at the time. So I devised a plan to print postcards with a form on the back <laughs> okay. addressed to me. And so I sent the – every time – and we were AZA members, so every every month there was a newsletter that came out in the AZA, so we knew who was breeding what. And I, we spoke to these people all the time. And remember back in those days, the concept at zoos tended to be what they call a postage stamp collection. Um, they were they wanted one of every species. Right. And, right. and breeding had not been a, a, a common concept among zoos. The guys that worked in the reptile departments really were committed to it, but they were they were controlled more or less by the, the, the commitment to having animals on exhibit. Breeding wasn't a high priority. So they were they were limited. They really couldn't do much in the way of breeding. The, the, the guys in the private sector really were the forerunners. But we knew all these guys, and some of the guys were, were, were great. It was uh, Dave Grove from Oklahoma City and, and John McLean and, and, and Jim Murphy and Trooper Walsh who did condor pythons. Yeah. But by and large, by and large, the zoos were limited in their ability to really try real captive breeding projects. So I, I sent these postcards Every time I heard of a captive breeding, private or in a zoo, anywhere in the world, I'd send a postcard out. And it had all the information, uh, the, the genus, the species, the temperature requirements, everything that I needed to have. And I did that. Uh, the, that project took me about five years. And at the same time, I was taking doing as much photography as I could. Mm-hmm. And with a f- with few exceptions uh, i did all the photography in the book the cover the cover wow. picture of the <laughs> the is that a walmart or a black-headed pie i think it's a black-headed um i didn't do that 
Um, that was done by, I think it was John Weigel in Australia. I wanted the cover photograph and the photograph on the back of the diamond python to be taken by somebody not in the U.S. Because I didn't want somebody in the U.S. to say, oh, that's my snake on the cover of that book. So I used two snakes that were bred in, bred in Australia. With, but with a few exceptions, I did all the photography. And okay. then um, it was published in um, in a in, uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, um, by a guy who was a herp guy that I knew, and he kind of kept an eye on the publishing, except for that one word. Um, <laughs> so that one got we got by him. Yeah, what are you gonna do? I would tell you, I, I won't forget that day when I ran up into the attic. I had the blue lines, the final everything up, up up in the attic of my house, and I ran up there, and it was it said woman, not woman. And anyway, that was, that was <laughs> so. Um, that was, you know, that was sort of the. I remember I did my best work really late at night, so I wouldn't start work on that book till eleven o'clock at night, and I worked till three o'clock in the morning for many, many nights uh, to, to get that book done. Wow, I mean, that's quite a feat that takes pictures of all those all different those stuff, species yeah. of owls and pythons. I mean, wow, that's uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, I don't even own a camera anymore. <laughs> 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 wow! It, it, so it, I, you got what you needed from it, you know. <laughs> you got the book, yeah. yeah. But it was interesting going around the zoos because in those days, you know, you'd, you'd go through a zoo and um, the, the 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 keeper, the curator would say, "Well, we've had this snake for thirteen years, and we've had that snake for twelve years." It was more you know, they were proud of how long they had kept snakes yeah right and, and of course that's all changed there was a there was an expose in life magazine back in i think it was the 70s called the naked the naked cage in which many zoos were, were criticized for 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 keeping animals in bare cages but you know you'd see a snake in a cage with gravel on the bottom a water dish and a hide box and maybe a log and that's it and that was the whole thing and, and that's how they lived out their lives and this was like this was groundbreaking for you know, I guess that that what we would consider the beginning of the hobby at this point, because at this point there was nothing like this that was ever released or available to anybody, right? That's right. There was no technology, yeah. and uh, as you guys know, I recently decided I can't live the rest of my life without snakes. So I, I decided, <laughs> well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build a cage that my mom and dad wouldn't let me have when I was a kid. <laughs> so yes, and I did it, and I'm still trying to make it work. But it was a it's got two fountains with running water and it's got uh, live plants and artificial plants and, and, and uh, UV Excellent. lights and, and they're all on timers and it's eight feet long. I mean, this is a big cage. This is an exhibit cage. But when I first started, first made the decision to keep snakes again, I went online and, you know, I know these guys, you know, like uh, um, da, uh, um, Giovanni from from uh, uh, um, the Bean Farm. Yeah. I've known these guys yeah. since they were right out of their garage. Uh, 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 um, Herb, Gary Bagnell, you know, when he was operating out of a warehouse, 
And so I, so I thought, I'm going to just see what technology has to offer. And I was, I'm still astonished. Software. I mean, you can get these, these, these Herbstat thermostats. You could run a war with these things. Well, I mean, you know, and that's what kills me. I, I, I have all this technology and you're breeding the two species that I can't get to breed in your basement in a box. Like, it's all right. I mean, well, yeah, that's it. I mean, we made these, we made our cages. These were boxes that I got out of China. Exactly. We made these boxes with a hammer uh. and a nail and a saw. And, and there was nothing. And, and we didn't know what we were doing. It, we, it just, you know, it just took some basic, you know, some basic changes and they started to breed. And I, mean, I, I hope I don't breed snakes. I really don't want to breed snake now. <laughs> and, and, you know, I made this beautiful cage and every day we get down there and, and the, the snakes are sitting on top of the fountain, which I didn't want them to do. Or they're curled up in a corner and I can't feed them because, you know, in, in the days when we had these, uh, um, um, plastic cages where with sliding glass fronts and and you know the ca- the snake was in a cage with nothing in it. You could just throw food in and they eat it. But now I'm having trouble getting them to eat because they they love the cage. They're all hiding in different spots and and, and but they're not they're, they're not accessible where I can just hold a rat in front of them. Right. But yeah, the technology is absolutely astonishing. Um, you know, I mean, the, 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 you know, I keep saying it's an industry. It was an industry. So what happened was that it went in a, in a span of, let's just say, 40 years from something that no one could do, breeding snakes, to something that only the real experts could do. And then it segued to the point that good good keepers, zoo guys, good keepers could do it. And then it became a cottage industry. Uh, so here's a story, speaking of cottage industries. So there was a guy who, uh, who was a keeper at one of the Texas zoos. And um, he was making a lot of money raising snakes in his basement and selling them on the side. And he wasn't paying taxes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he was talking about it too much down at the zoo. And people were getting tired of hearing his stories about, oh, I'm making all this money and I'm breeding this and I'm breeding that. So he decided to have a little fun with them. <laughs> so <Yep>. they hired <laughs> This is a good one. Keith has heard this. So they hired a stripper. And the zoo director was in on it. Uh-huh. And the stripper shows up at the zoo director's office dressed like an IRS agent. <laughs> so the zoo director calls this guy and says, uh, um, there's a, an IRS agent here in my office and wants to talk to you. So he goes up to her, up to the office and sits down and there's this woman with a hat on and <laughs> she's got a, you know, an IRS a, a uniform of some kind and she starts talking to him i understand you've been breeding snakes at home and according to our records you've been breeding this snake and that snake and you've been uh, charging uh, oh uh this amount of God. money and uh, you've had an income and this guy and uh, 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 he's just totally sweaty and according to this you've been our information you've been doing this for three years and haven't and at that point she she just loosens her tie <laughs> and and he's not noticing. He's just petrified. Oh, so she she's going on, and you have a twenty five thousand dollars in fines, and she's loosening her tie a little more and unbuttoning a button, and he's still not noticing. He's so scared. 
God. And finally, finally, she takes her hat off, and she's got long blonde hair. Oh. And then he knew he'd been had. Uh. Oh my god! Did he stop bragging after that? Yeah, so that's, he, that's, he, yeah he got the message. Yeah, he got the message. Yeah, anyway, that's but, a good one. Um, that's the way you know. Zoos were pretty much primarily focusing on longevity of, of animals, and and um, it was the the uh, the private sector pretty much that 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 were the uh, the groundbreakers and the forerunners in, in captive breeding, but we you know there was no technology, um, and we pretty much had to do everything everything on our own and. Strangely, a lot of it, a lot of it just worked. Uh, it just seemed to work. So you've been uh, working on the Alberts. I've been working on the Alberts for years. Yeah. The Alberts, yeah. Timors, rings, all yeah. the weird stuff. <laughs> ring. Yeah. So, oh, so there's a story. So you know, ring pythons I found not too difficult, um, but um, so one of your questions was. What was the what was the most important snake for you to to to, yeah. to try to breed? Or right. to, and there was a time when what whatever the rarest of the rare was, I had to have, and it, it varied. First, it was it was it was chondropythons because they were impossible. Mm. Um, there was a legendary story. One of the importers had gotten a chondropython illegally in Australia, shipped it to South America. Where he turned around and shipped it into the U.S. as a green tree python, just to get one. And they were impossible, but I but they were also in Indonesia, and uh-huh. so that at that point, green tree python was something I had to have. And I tracked down an exporter in Indonesia, and I wrote to him and I told him that I wanted to get green tree pythons, and I described the snake to him. Of course, there was no way to send pictures easily at the time. Mm. So mm. he said, oh, that's not a problem. Uh, I, I, I can get them for you. So a few weeks later, I get a telegram that says, uh, I have 10 green tree pythons I'm going to send you. All right, great. So um, I went down to, to customs, and, uh, to, and, um, and it was Pan American Airlines at the time before they'd gone bankrupt, and uh, excitedly opened the box. And in fact, they were not green tree pythons. They were the green vine snakes at Ahatula. That's just oh, a long nosed green vine snake. And they were oh wow, they were worthless. Really, they they weren't they weren't <laughs> of any value. So I explained explained to him that um, that that was the wrong snake. And somehow I managed to get a picture. And I sent him a picture. He said, "Oh, no problem. You know, I, I can get them." And the next time he did, the next time he sent me ten green tree pythons, and they all came in fine. Um, wow! But the, the next one, the next one after that was the New Ireland ring python. Okay. And that became the holy grail. So I didn't know where New Ireland was, but I found out it was a little island off the coast of New Guinea. Okay. And by that time, I learned that I could go anywhere in the world just by volunteering to work, and. I thought, okay, well, there's got to be a hospital on that island, and the capital city, the only city, is Kaviang. So there's got to be a hospital there. So I wrote, uh, General Hospital, Hospital Director, General Hospital, Kaviang, New Ireland, New Guinea. Sure enough, and I offered to volunteer. Yeah, three weeks later, he had let him back. Absolutely delighted to have you come and volunteer, Dr. Ross. That was it. So I went to 
New Ireland and I volunteered. It was, it was really cool. I mean, it was, it was a great place. So all kinds of really neat stuff, malaria, leprosy. Um, God. I, it was, um, one of the things that I saw that in, in, in the, in the Melanesian, the local people, it's considered very poor, uh, um, very, very poor karma to show pain. Okay. So there was a guy who had injured himself. He was working at a copra plant. And copra is a product made from crushing coconut fiber and extracting the liquid. And the fiber itself is used for fertilizer or, or for other purposes. Mm-hmm. But the, the copra plant was made out of uh, – the, the crushing machine was just two big giant steel wheels. Uh, uh, cylinders, and this guy got his fingers caught in it and crushed his fingers oh. about halfway up. And he walked; his fingers all bandaged up with a dirty old bandage. He walked with pieces of bone sticking out. He walked two miles to get to the hospital, and he shows up at the hospital. And we had to peel all this stuff off his fingers, <laughs> and and every day we'd have to go in and scrub it and clean it. Oh. And the guy would hold; he'd hold his hand with his other hand, and never showed any pain. And all the other People in the hospital and around the air would stand and watch him in awe. And at the same time in the hospital, there was a kid, a young kid, maybe 12 years old, with tuberculosis of the lymph nodes of his neck, which was called scrofula. And we had to go in and clean them off with a sponge on a stick every day to clean them down. And the kid screamed in pain. And all the people in the hospital stood around and laughed at him. Jesus. Oh, can't, wow. can't show pain. Wow. But anyway, any rate, while I was there, I kind of quietly spread the word that I was uh, looking for these snakes. And I finally turned up two. And I decided, well, it's time for me to leave the hospital. Mm. And at that time, it was before endangered species. It was before society. So there weren't a lot of laws. And the U.S. customs didn't really care that much about snakes. Um, and I don't think New Guinea had any restrictive laws at the time. But I did not want to go back through Australia because I figured if the Australian customs found them, they would just say, well, you can't take those on a plane because their customs are very strict. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm going to find another way to get back to the U.S. So I found that there was a flight that went from the island that I was on to some of the other islands where they had mining industry and then flew from there to – the British Solomon Islands. So I booked a flight on on one, uh, I booked a pay, uh, seat on one of those flights, and got on a plane, no problem. Took off, landed at the first island, and it started to rain, and it was pouring rain. Well, they boarded some passengers, and one Caucasian guy got on. The rest were all Melanesian natives who were working in the mines, and this Caucasian guy looks around the plane, sees me, another Caucasian sits down next to me. Well, the plane is grounded because of the pouring rain, and we're just chatting, and we're each thinking, what is this guy doing on this plane? (laughs) 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 We're out in the middle of nowhere on this little 12-seater plane. (laughs) Right. So he finally says to me, why are you here? (laughs) I said, oh, I was uh, uh, collecting snakes. And I had them in my pockets, just in, 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 in socks, one in each pocket. And I was wearing a suit jacket, uh, a sport coat. And he says, snakes? Where are they? 
And I said, well, they're right here in my pocket. She says, oh, my God, I hate snakes. You've got uh, yeah, pocket. right. Well, okay. Indiana Jones style. Yeah. That's right, that's right. So I said to him. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? He says, well, I came to get orchids. And that's what he was there for. He, he had orchids. Okay, all right. So, so a, little ta- a little tamer than snakes. So at any rate, um, but he had decided for the same reason that it was better to go through the Solomons because he didn't know what they'd say in Australia. So he went straight back to the U.S. from the Solomon Islands, and I decided to stay there for a few days uh, because I was looking for Candoya, the Solomon Islands boas, and nobody had ever brought them in. So I met a native guy there whose name – I'll never forget his name. His first name was Johnson. His last name was Olisukulu, and his first name was Johnson because the, 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 the local people in the South Pacific Islands were very enthralled with Lyndon Johnson. Okay. <laughs> and, and many of them had named their daughters, girl and boys, Johnson. So this guy's name was Lyndon Johnson. I mean, was <laughs> Johnson Oli Sukulu. They left out the Lyndon. His name was Johnson Oli Sukulu. So he was afraid of the snakes. He didn't want to handle them. But he said, you know, there's this big lizard here. Do you want that? So, of course, I said, sure. I didn't know what it was. So I went back home, took the um, the, the, uh, the ring python, said, no problem. Just showed them a customs and walked through. And um, a few weeks later, I get a phone call from Pan Am in Hawaii. And the guy says, this is this cardboard box here with your name and address on it. And he's just, it's kind of falling apart. And there's these big lizards. What are we supposed to do with them? Oh, God. <laughs> well, find another box or something and put them in there and send them. <laughs> so he did. And he sent them, he sent them up to uh, San Francisco. And I was riding a motorcycle. Then I rode out to the, to the airport and on my motorcycle, put them on the back of my motorcycle and, and drove back. And, um, they were Karushas abroad, and they were the first live Karusha, I think, that were ever ever imported. And I knew nothing about them. But I'll never forget, I had one of them sitting. I made a cage for them, and I had one of them sitting. I, I didn't know what they ate, and I, it was on a branch, and it was it was gaping its mouth up. It was it was just displaying that, that threat posture. And I thought, well, oh, I bet they eat pinkies. So I had a pinky rat. So I, I, I tried to gently put it into his mouth, and it, it got hung up on his halfway in, halfway out. So I reached forward with my finger to flip it into his mouth, and he grabbed, clomped down on my on my finger. Oh, and oh boy, I forgot that. Those I mean, they're, they're oh, wow. powerful jaws and sharp teeth. Um, wow! But that was that was the you know the second snake that I simply had to have. The first one was the condor python, the second was the ring python. Another one that I just really wanted was it was um, uh, the uh, Argentine boa. Okay. And, and I negotiated an exchange. No, it wasn't an exchange. I negotiated. I think I purchased them from the zoo in Buenos Aires. Uh, it took me two years to get the paperwork done because it was they were legally exported and the institute was nonprofit, government, et cetera, et cetera. But I finally was able to get uh, two, Argent- two Argentine rainbow rows. And I bred them. I uh, actually bred them a number of times. Hmm. Okay. Awesome. That you can like, very good. negotiate with a zoo. Like you're just like, be like, yeah, I want that. Like I can't even do that. Like <laughs> I wish I could be like, you know what? You guys got some good stuff here. Box it up. <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> 
Did you guys, did you breach it? Like, I would imagine finding feeders were hard, right? I mean, how did you how did you go about that? How did, did you, you breed your own everything, right? Well, that's so interesting because one of the things that I notice is that selling frozen frozen what I call ratsicles and mysicles, you know, that's an industry now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you had to breed your own. There was no source who had to breed your own. And now they're okay. now they're expanding into other stuff like chickens, quails, rabbits. Oh, wow. yeah, rabbits, guinea pigs. Yeah. Yeah, we had to breed our own. There was there was no no way to get anything as frozen. You had to be a good snake breeder and a good rodent breeder at the same time. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> listen, yeah, I was, can't do rodents. Breeding the rodents. Well, I have to do it now because I've got snakes again. So I'm starting that all over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What snakes do you have now that you've kind of plugged back in? Yeah, well, I've been warned by by Eric and by by Rob and others. I said I'm just going to get one snake. Just and uh, I was talking <laughs> to uh, a couple of old friends, Tommy Crutchfield and and um, Bill Lamar and Louis Porras. I said no, I just want one snake. I just want a nice red tail boa, a classic red tail. Right. I said, no big, it'll be easy. Um, I'll just go find one. Well. I had no idea how <laughs> difficult it would be. And of course, back in the days when, when I was actually bringing in boas from South America, they were anywhere from a dollar to five dollars each. And I thought, well, I'll, you know, I want to get one that's feeding and one that's, you know, handleable because uh, my little granddaughter, I want to get a picture of her with a snake around her neck. You know, and I, I was sitting out on a on a fool's errand, you know, it decided to pretty quickly realize that it's just not that easy anymore. No. So, um, I ended up, um, getting three wild caught. I wanted wild caught because I did not want any animals that, that had been hybridized and, or with unknown, unknown, um, genes. Right. Right. So I ended up getting three, uh, wild import red tail boas that are beautiful snakes, and um, I got them from uh, Rob at um, Nerd, Nerd New England. Yeah. Yeah. Real nice. And you know, I've got one of them. One of them is two of them have eaten frozen once. The third one hasn't eaten. But then Tommy Crutchfield offered me a pair of diamond pythons that he had raised a year old, and I couldn't turn them down. So. Yeah. You're not going to stop with one. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way. I said, "Oh yeah, I just want one." Well, I've got five. <laughs> and so, so it begins. That's, that's, that's right. Oh. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, I got diamond pythons breeding right now. Right, so uh, no kidding. Back behind him is yeah. Yeah, I, I was curious, right? You know, like um, there's, there's, uh, was it? Did people focus on localities of of back then? Did was was that a thing, or did the you know the the people that you were getting them from from the field were they trying to appease the buyer and sort of you know uh, I guess making up the localities that you wanted to hear, or how did that work? I think people generally didn't care because so many of these, uh, especially pythons and and boas, exotic animals, were very hard to get. Right. So they were happy to get them any way. Whatever they could, they could get. Right. Right. Okay. right. That's right. Yeah. Some of the early locality data, for example, I remember well, you know, I was in Australia many times and I remember well um, learning that there were carpet python localities. Yeah. Uh, the, the 
the one that I call the Brisbane variety, um, which is a big snake, gets to seven or eight feet, mm-hmm. uh, not striking colors, but more manageable as opposed to what we call back then the Atherton Tablelands uh, variety, which was smaller, uh, more attractive, and, and didn't begin to eat as readily. But they were very different snakes, but they were both carpet pythons. Um, so I think the basic answer was that people just were happy to get them any any way they could. Right. Was until, you know, contemporary times that, that people really wanted to know the locality data. Right. Gotcha. Was there a species that you wanted to work with that you never got to work with? Never came in in time. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair question. Um, let me think. Well, yes, yes. It's the Bolans, you know, that was yeah. Bolans, Bolans python was, was, was very rare and almost unheard of in captivity by the time that I had stopped keeping uh, snakes. And it wasn't, an, I, 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 I understand that they're being bred now. And somewhat shaky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very, very yeah. rarely. Yeah. Well, and that's a snake. It reminds me of the black of the uh, diamond python because I was not successful in breeding diamonds because I was keeping them in the rooms that I had designed for other snakes, which didn't get very cold in the evening. They didn't get much colder than maybe 75 degrees. But from what I understand, they really need to get down into the 60s or they're not going to breed because it's a temperate climate snake. They're, right. they're from New South Wales. It gets down into the 40s. And there was a great study done by Rick Shine in which he put uh, transmitters, temperature transmitters in diamond pythons mm. and tracked them around. And a great story, he, showed, he, he found one in a residential community and he knocked on the door and a woman answers his door and he says, uh, Madam, she says, there's a snake in your yard. Uh, I need to find He says, there's no snake in my yard. And he said, he very patiently explained to her that he was – uh, studying these snakes, and there was a transmitter and a snake, and there was one in her backyard, and there was a diamond python curled up under a tr- somewhere in, in you know in a wood pile or something in her backyard. But he was able to demonstrate that in in temperatures down in the 60s, basking, they were able to get their body temperature, their core temperature, up into the 90s. Right. And I think um, bolans are probably the same in the sense that they're a mountainous snake, but they must and they're black for a reason. Yeah, well, sure. I was, never, yeah. I was yeah. never able to breed diamond pythons because they weren't getting cold enough. Yeah. So, yeah. but I'm, I promise I'm not going to try to get diamond python. I mean, black, uh, bolus pythons now. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, that, that you're drawing the line there. That's it right yeah, there. It's a, that's right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I think it's what it, it, it you know, that you said there were $5 back in the day and now oh, it's like $2. probably $2. $2. $2. $2. They've right. gone up in price. From last night, bought one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little right. bit. Yeah, probably a hundred thousand times Here. more than that. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Have, you, have you? Have there? I mean, you've done a ton of herping and a ton of like exploration. Was there a place that you did not get to go, or a species you did not get to see out in the uh, wild that you tried real hard for? Yeah, I have lots of funny stories. Oh yeah, um, please. <laughs> so I was in Madagascar. Oh. Um, oh, this is the best story of all, and I'm glad you reminded me. I don't want to forget okay. it. So I had, you know, I wanted Sanzinia and I wanted Acrantopus, and I actually had corresponded with the government because it was French government then, and they offered, they said that they would give me permits when I got there. And um, so I was staying with a local guy, and um, we did get Sanzinia, um, and we were. Um, 
we're out driving around one night. Oh, there's another story. Everything reminds me of a story. <laughs> so we were, out, we were out driving around one night, and um, we didn't come home then. I was staying with his, with him and his he and his wife, and he he worked on a coffee plantation, and. It was he was staying in the in the housing that they provided for him. No refrigerator, an upstairs and a downstairs, and, and a little and a stove. And one night we stayed out late snake hunting. We decided to spend the night in the guest house somewhere and didn't come home. The next day, oh, that night we found Sanzinia on the road, and they were that I'm not sure what they call them now, but it's that lightish kind of coffee colored phase, um, not the green color. The Mandarin. Man. Mandarin, Mandarin. Mandarin. I'd, never, I'd never, I'd never seen them before. Never knew they existed. Yeah. And I found them on the on the road. That was my road hunting uh, pinnacle. Uh, <laughs> found two of them on the road. Uh, at any rate, we came home the next day and sat down for dinner, and his wife put uh, a piece of meat on my plate and on his plate, and I took a bite of it, and it was rancid. I mean, it was really rotten. So I thought, oh my goodness, I'm sure they spent money on this. I have to swallow it. So I did. And then he took a bite and he spit it out on the ground and he turns to his wife and starts yelling at her. Well, it turned out that she'd made it the night before, but they didn't have a refrigerator. So oh. she just stuck it on a shelf and it was like 95 degrees in the place. They didn't have it was no cooling and it was very hot. Oh, um, God. <laughs> so I got, I got violently sick. Um, yeah. It was one of the two sickest times I've ever, ever been. I was afraid I was going to have to go to the American embassy for help. But I, I, I survived drinking Coca-Cola. One of the two times I – Coca-Cola saved my life. At any rate, um, <laughs> we, were out, we were out hunting for snakes in another area up in the northwest. and oh, We were hunting chameleons, and we'd been out looking for two days and had not found any. Mm. And we were on the way back. Okay. We stopped at a roadside stand to get some fruit. And there are a bunch of kids at the stand. And I happen to have my camera out, and I'm filming the kids and talking to them. And the kids said, what are you doing here? Because they don't see Caucasians. They don't see you know white people there up in the hills. Mm. He said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, we're looking for – speaking in French, which I was moderately fluent in. And I said, well, we're here looking for these lizards. And this kid says, well, how many did you get? How many did you find? Where are they? And I said, well, we didn't find any. Hmm. And this kid says, well, do you want some? I said, sure. Yeah. So he, turn, he turns around. And I had this all on film. He turns around and walks over the tree and picks one off a tree like an apple and, and brings it over. <laughs> I mean, they were all in front of us. We just didn't see them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, they were, and, and, and the next thing you know, all the kids are bringing these chameleons to us. They must oh have brought us 30 God. or 40 of these things in boxes and bags and they're all fighting with each other they're also loose in these bags it's like that's what happened almost everywhere i went um we saw when i was in new guinea with jerry we saw i'm not going to remember the name of the big very poisonous um snake on the road when you're road hunting at night but we didn't we couldn't catch up to it um but almost everywhere when you travel in 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 uh forests and jungles and you know the, the the local people know where these things are and they can find it for you easily but it was very rare that i had an opportunity to actually see something independently on my own um there was one time in australia where i was up just snake hunting you could call it but just enjoying being up in the mountains and i was 
on a on an edge of a a rock edge, not high up, by, but above uh, uh, about ten feet above the ground. Mm. And I had walked over to the edge, and I was sitting on the edge and filming, taking some pictures. And I started to slide down, and it wasn't high; it wasn't really dangerous. But I tried to get my get a grip, and I couldn't. I slid all the way down to the ground below and landed on a big amethystine python. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was it was over ten feet long, and it was ferocious. And it took turns snapping at me and trying to get away. It just it just eventually within within thirty four or five seconds it just took off. Uh, but that was about one of the very few times I've actually seen a snake independently on my own it's, it's just real hard to see him yeah. unless you have somebody along along with you who knows the area yeah we, we we usually end up traveling in a group because you need more eyes than just the two that are in your head otherwise you just walk right. right right past the snake and see what goes on there so um uh do you uh do you wait hold on one second <laughs> I'm, I'm, he's sending me messages through the thing, so I'm trying to formulate a question, and he's talking to me at Got the it. same time. Eric, yep. Jesus. So, um, <laughs> very good, Owen. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing well. But was there that animal that like you hunted for that you missed, and you were really kind of open to see out in the wild? Uh, well, let's see. You know, I. Uh, <laughs> I always I, I hope to see a chondra python in the wild. That you know we had the the, the natives bring them to us, mm-hmm. but that you know that wasn't really quite the same. Um, you know I think over the years I was well let's see it was Fiji. I was in and that's a, it's a kind of a fun story. I was in Fiji and I was looking for Fiji boas, and. I was up in the hills in the mountains, staying with a with a with a, a local Fijian, and I arrived in this village. Took a bus up the mountains, arrived in the village, and just walked in and introduced myself. And they all, you know, they're all English speaking because it was a, it was British. And I said, I'm looking for these snakes, and uh, they said, Okay, well the next day we'll go out and start looking for them. And um, so three or four of the guys and I went out and just looking around for snakes and it didn't take very long before they found found one and brought it to me and it was great it was a big big uh, candoya and we're out looking around again and uh over a period of several hours they found a number of them but they were all big and and they were all females and i'm beginning to think you know i really wanted to breed them uh, I, I need a male mm-hmm. and they were bringing me these big big boas that were all females so i'm walking around with these guys and i'm walking around with one of the guys and sort of the two of us together we were just going through the bushes they were fairly easy to find and i said is that one and he looks as oh yeah that's somebody you don't want that one and i said why he said it was too small yeah, but and I so need I this small one. <laughs> so I picked it up. I picked it up. I picked it up out of the bushes, and it was a male. Of course. <laughs> and he said, "Throw it back. It's, it's too small." They said, "No." They were throwing all the males back. <laughs> they not found them. They just they just thought that. Well, they didn't. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, and I, you know, I could claim to have seen it independently. It was he that showed me the area, et cetera, et cetera. But I saw it, and I said. 
well, is is that one of the one of the snakes? And that it, it was that was the explanation was that they just decided amongst themselves that I did only wanted big ones. No, no, I want them all. <laughs> I need them yes, all. Exactly. I want them all. I'm here. I want them all. Exactly right. Wow. You know, you know, I just it just came to mind to me. Right today, we have temp guns yep. and thermostats and all these different things well, like. How did you guys keep track of temperatures and how did you know what the temperature was of, of whether it's eggs or the, or the python or, you know? So, uh, uh, interesting question. Um, of course, there were no, no programmable thermostats that, right. you know, or no herp stats, no, no, nothing like that. And I had realized that we needed to have a rising and falling temperature every day in order for them to, to stay healthy and reproduce. Well, at the time, you could buy a thermostat that was made for home use called a setback th thermostat. And it was a little programmable device that ran on uh, two AA cells. And it the, the, the idea was that you could program this thing so that when you got up in the morning, the temperature was, let's say, 75. And you knew everybody in the house left for school or for work at 8 o'clock. So you could program it at 8 o'clock to go down to 60. That way you're not going to be using electricity. You're not going to be using gas or whatever your heat store was. And you could pro everybody's coming home around 5 o'clock. So you could program it to come back up. You could program this little – and it was meant to be mounted on the wall in your home. Right. So I – concluded that I could create a device using that setback th thermostat with a relay switch that would then trigger uh, a, a space heater. Okay. So I built this myself and it was a relay that was operated on the AA uh, voltage on one side and it was 110 volts on the other side. And I programmed these thermostats to do exactly that. I programmed them to come on at, uh, let's say, 8 o'clock in the morning to 75. But at uh, 10 o'clock, it would go to 85. And at uh, 1 o'clock, it would go to 88. At uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, it would start back down again. And at 7, 8 o'clock at night, it would go back down to, let's just say, 65. And it worked great. So in, I, in the building that I had built, in each room – there were uh, – I had Neodache cages, racks of cages. Right. And in each room, there was a rack of cages on either side of the, the room, and I had a space heater in the center of the room hooked up to this thermostat device that I had, that I had de devised. And that kept the temperature – and it worked. It worked really well. Right. It worked for years. Um, I was disappointed that I hadn't patented it. I think I, I could have been rich and famous. <laughs> Yeah, Herp stat would be still paying me the money. You missed it by that much. I missed it. <laughs> right, right. Oh wow, that's excellent. You know, it's the same. Even the same thing with 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 the eggs. Like, I mean, coming up with an well, I guess the incubator was probably somewhat uh, easy to come up with since you know other chicken eggs and stuff like that. And then you know, come but ha it just fascinates me how you guys figured out how to incubate these eggs. Like, I, I guess there must've been a lot of trial and error and. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really, it's a fun question. Um, the first time I was able to pin down the actual desirable temperature yeah. was 
with a Maclutz python that I left on the eggs. And I thought, okay, I got to figure this out. What should the temperature be? And I didn't have an incubator, um, but I left the Maclutz python and I, had, I was still using aquariums, glass aquariums with sliding tops. Mm-hmm. And she was on the eggs in the aquarium. And I had a heat tape. And these were the. This is what we use for heating the cages. They were called pipe warming tapes, and you use them to wrap your pipes with in the winter time when the temperature got below freezing right. to keep your pipes water from freezing. Right. Mm-hmm. So we used these pipe warming. We'd run run them along the back of the cages, and so I positioned one of these heat warming tapes under the cage, and just diagonally across the corner of the cage and then i measured the temperature in the cage with an ordinary thermometer and by adjusting the amount of the heat tape under the cage i could raise and lower the temperature okay the more tape that was under the cage the higher the temperature and i watched the female and what I discovered was that when the temperature dropped below about 85 or 86, she'd coil tightly around the eggs. When I raised the temperature to about 85, 86, 87, 88, her coils would loosen and she'd relax. Did it the other way around? She And the other thing that I noticed, nobody knew this then, but she started twitching. When right. the temperature got too low, she'd started to twitch. And right. I thought, wow, look at that. That what an epiphany. She's raising the temperature in the eggs by vibrating her muscle mass. And, ra- and they could raise the temperature 10, 15 degrees by doing that. So by playing with that arrangement, I discovered that the desirable temperature seemed to be around 87, 88. Wow. So in the meantime, while I was still waiting for another clutch of eggs, I decided to design this incubator, which is in my book. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I used a chicken egg ther- uh, a thermostat. And I use those heat tapes. So the heat tapes are strung across the bolts that I ran from one end of the other to the uh, of the incubator, and and then another set of bolts above those on which the styrofoam shipping container would sit. And in the styrofoam shipping container was vermiculite, and the egg sat on the vermiculite. And then I would have a a, um, uh, a thermometer inside the uh, the styrofoam that would tell me what the temperature was where the eggs were and then I could you, you know you adjust the temperature of the thermostat by just by screwing that uh, that disc and you seen those yeah. those chicken egg thermos? Those yeah so you, or whatever they're yeah. called yeah, yeah. ovibator exactly yeah. that's yeah. how they said exactly right yeah. so and they work they work beautifully they work it worked very very well and then I thought hmm what if one of these things fails? Um, one of the thermostats failed. So then I realized I put two in line, one is uh, so that that way you had a backup thermostat mm-hmm. in case one failed. Right. But it worked very well. It, it, I mean, yeah. thinking about all the stuff that you got to like, you had to, to do with like it, this picture is like of you candling an egg with like a chicken like candle or whatever. Oh. Yeah. And I'm like, it was, that's a great device. Right. That's called. That's called a chun gun. Yeah, and, and it's it's stuff, stuff yeah. we think, again take for granted. I use an LED flashlight. I got at CVS. I didn't need. <laughs> yeah, I didn't great. need an associated chun gun. Yeah, right. like to candle my eggs. I had to borrow. I had to borrow that from the uh, the newborn intensive care unit at the hospital because it's used to quote candle the skull of a newborn baby oh, to wow. see, the, the, see if they, their brain is normal. They know you took oh. it, right? You didn't just walk out with it like one day. Uh, I mean, uh, 
They won't no, miss it. Uh, and it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but what they didn't know was what I was really using. Oh, okay. It for. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just fascinating that you kind of come up with this stuff. And again, a lot of stuff that herpers nowadays take for granted. That oh yeah, yeah a lot of this Incredible. kind of stuff. Every awesome. time I look at that kinksnake.com website, I'm just I'm just awed. You know, it's like it's it's like uh, let's see who was it? Um, one of the fathers of the atom bomb. Uh, who when he when he when, when he saw it go off, he said, "Oh uh, yeah." What have I wrought? Yeah. You know? <laughs> You're like, dear God. What, what, have, I, what have I inflicted on humanity? Uh, oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it You're must have wrong. been. I, I mean, it must have been exciting when you when you saw that first snake pipping out of the egg. I mean, I that had oh, been to, to tell you, that was, I mean, I have a picture of the white-lipped python, the first one ever born. Mm. And and it was so interesting because I mean you know no one knew anything about this stuff and when the eggs went bad you didn't know what to do right um, and eventually I began to understand you know the whole many of the aspects of python egg incubation and when you treat them properly you still have some that go bad and I eventually began to realize that a good egg doesn't go bad that's what I would say if you have an infertile egg it's going to go bad mm. and people used to get really freaked out by having a egg go bad a middle uh, amongst the good the good eggs right and they think, oh the other, it's, it doesn't go they don't go bad yeah I mean if if, if only if you have one egg that's infertile and you know there's that green yeah bluish green mold yep. you know what that is that's, that's gram negative bacteria that's the pseudomonas okay that I found in the snake's mouths Ooh. is green blue color is classic for pseudomonas bacteria. So even the newborn snakes have it, even the eggs have it. But I had reached the point of just when the eggs went bad, I just ignored them. And I have pictures of, uh, you know, eggs hatching in the middle of dead brown dried up eggs. Mm -hmm. But that first, the Albert's Python, there were, there were bad eggs next to it. And I, that snake's head poked out and I said, Oh boy, that was, I, that was one day I'll never forget. And I got a picture of it with his tongue out. So they have a red tongue. Mm. So there's that wonderful black snake with the white lips and the red tongue red amongst tongue. that coming out of that white egg. Wow. Red Gorgeous. tongue. Red Gorgeous. tongue. Red tongue coming out of the white lips. Right. Exactly. Uh. Exactly. And like, you know, another thing that I didn't even think of until you just started saying that, right? I mean, you, you hatch out this snake, you see this black snake with the, with the red tongue and the white yep. lips and yep. like, you don't have a Facebook to post it to. You, you, yeah, you don't there's have, no following. Yeah. It's just you. You can't text message somebody and let them right. know. There's nobody to brag. Yeah. To. Yeah. It's just you in the basement right. with the snakes. It's right. yeah. Uh, oh my god. Well, we we were nominated. We were nominated for the Bean Award for that, and um, that's better than Facebook. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Oh man! Actually, wow. What's actually funny is that I'm, I'm I keep going through the my book here, and actually my copy is signed by you. So it's ah. like, <laughs> what did you get it from? Um, I got it from just uh some guy on Facebook who was selling uh books, but yeah, it's like right right in there, uh, signed. Does it have the stamp? Does it have that embossed stamp in it? Uh, I don't believe so, but it says that I can get this copy dirty. Is what it says from you. Um, but I don't, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, it go. doesn't stick in my head. Yeah. That's great. That's, that's great. Yeah. I like it. Well, I'll, 
I'll let you keep. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's man, amazing! But... That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I well, I, I would just say thank you for. I mean, you made this hobby at least for me because I'm a Python guy. Yeah. You know, I mean you have made this much easier and enjoyable, <laughs> you know, and, um, with all the hard work that you've done and, uh, man, I just, I can't thank you enough. Wow. The, the, my, book. My, the license plate on my car. Mm. Yeah. is pythons. Yes. Really? That's great. Plate. The first one I had was Boa day. Uh-huh. But nobody knew what that meant. Oh, nobody yeah. knew what that meant. <laughs> so then I got, and it was in 1972 or 73, when, no, it was beyond 1975 or so. Anyway, it was when California went to seven letters. <laughs> and and that's going to go on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> that one's coming with me. Take the plate off. Yeah, like now it's... <laughs> Right. Oh it's been transferred from one card to another for for 25 years well it's good now that you have diamonds now so it's it, it fits again yeah. <laughs> you asked an interesting a good question um when when you uh email me and i think it's worth addressing sure. um as as you know um i stopped keeping uh reptiles almost 25 years ago and the your question was what was the most disappointing thing that happened to you? Mm. Yeah. And I thought about it and I couldn't think of anything really disappointing. And then I thought, of course I can. There was, uh, I was, we were at, at, at an IHS meeting and, and uh, we founded the IH, IHS in 1976, Louis Porras and Rick Hahn and I uh, and a few other guys. And it was really meant to be husbandry only. Uh, husband, uh, and it, it, it kind of segued or morphed into, uh, into the expos and guys kept bringing snakes to the, to the IHS meetings and keeping them in their drawers and the hotel rooms. And as you can imagine, uh, there was more than one incident in which guys got halfway home and realized they'd forgotten snakes oh, at the meeting. <laughs> so we were at the meeting in Miami and, um, a young herp guy came over to me. And he said, uh, he said, Dr. Ross, I, I want to cross uh, uh, African rock pythons with uh, a carpet python. Eh. What do you think I did? Eh. And I thought about, I thought about that for a moment. And I thought, this is what it's come to. This is where this is this is where we are now. Yeah. It it went from the time when any snake at all was totally awesome to me, a garter snake, a, 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 a okati corn snake, what could be more beautiful? Right. And to the point that it, it's gone from a cottage industry to a, a true industry. And what seems, what, what at that point I realized that what had happened is that people have started to lose appreciation for the wild, wild genome, the wild, the wild phenotype, the wild animal. Yeah. And I thought I thought for about a second or two and I said when you look at a wild snake you're looking at 100 million years of evolution. Why do you think you can improve on that? <laughs> and then I just walked away. And what's happened since then is that for the most part except for those of us who who really value the wild gene 
it's it's turned into a uh, it's, it's become part of the the um, the ornamental uh, pet trade. And and, yeah. and and I what I started calling designer animals, and there was a joke going around that one of the guys was 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 hybridizing different uh, tricolors, and the the joke was that for a price he'll create a tricolor with your name on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah. it, 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 it's reached the point now, and you guys have seen this, I'm sure you see it all the time. That the market, the industry, really became uh, profit-driven, right. and and the market, the the market for normal-appearing reptiles disappeared, yeah. and everyone was trying to produce something different that nobody else had, and it's emphasized. To, I find it emphasized all the time. If I walk into Petco or PetSmart. Or one time I walked into a pet shop and there was a, a kid walked in with a, a ball python around his neck. I mean, he was he walked into the store. He had it around his neck as he was walking down the street, and it it disappoints me that that with with exceptions, people don't really value don't don't respect the you know the wild animal, um, and. I, I I hope that there will be a core of us who will always appreciate the the fact that these animals have evolved over millions and millions of years. When you look at a, a snake, you can think, why does it have stripes? Why does it have rings? Why why do we have green tree pythons and emerald tree boas that are virtually identical snakes? What does that tell you? You can learn from that. You can't learn from um, I. Couldn't begin to name all of our variety. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know all of them. You know, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, this might make you happy, right? Um, I was, I, I was, uh, until I went to Australia, uh, I was very. Uh, I I always love the natural types, but I also love the the morph, the morph, if you will, as well. Um, and when I went to Australia, we saw this coastal carpet python. Well, yeah, our, our friend Scott Iper found this coastal carpet python for us. A Brisbane and coastal. We're looking at it. Yep, Brisbane coastal. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we're looking oh, at it. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're looking at it. And it's, you know, I'm looking at the, the pattern and the color. And it doesn't look like anything that uh, I have seen is what you would call a Brisbane co coastal carpet, right? And he puts it up in the tree. And it disappears. disappears. And I said, "Wow, it's it, it, you know these co these carpet pythons have all these different colors and patterns and and right. and they're really designed to disappear, mm -hmm. you know." Right. And uh, it just changed my whole mindset uh, of 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 that, you know. Um, I always loved I, natural snakes as well, but you know, it just it it focused me back to that, you know. Yeah. It it brought me back and put me in center again, if you will, I guess. I heard a fascinating story, very similar to what you're saying, from a, a, a collector mm -hmm. who had tried tricolors, and one got loose in his house, mm -hmm. and he was sitting in his living room, and out of the corner of the eye, he saw, saw some movement, and it was the tricolor, and it was crawling along the wall where the wall met the floor, mm -hmm. so it, it was kind of snugged in between the wall and the floor, so it was straight, wasn't curved. Mm -hmm. And as it crawled along, he suddenly saw that it seemed to be moving backwards. 
it was something about the, the vertical bands right. and the light in his room, whatever. It was going backwards. And who knows? What what better adaptation could you have? Right. Predator. <laughs> Not know where you're going. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. For it all. Yeah. Dr. Ross, I was wondering out of the conversation about when you first hatched the baby D. Alberts, uh, when you yes. were in New Ireland, had you, did you know what baby ring pythons looked like? Or was that a novel? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Oh, that's a wonderful question. So the two that I got were very small. They were babies. Okay. And they didn't have rings. They were solid color with one one small ring, like almost like a ring neck snake. Right. Okay. One small towards the head. I, I've hatched them a number of times, and you see them with these brilliant orange rings, and you know, almost blue green and brilliant orange. But these two didn't, and I didn't really know what they were. And I saw that they had, they had uh, vestigial legs, and I thought, oh my God, this is a new species of python. Right? It's a non species. Oh, no. So they when when they started, and they were very small. When they started to grow, they developed a normal pattern. Oh. Good. But I'd never seen them. A little disappointed, but still got your ring. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was the holy grail. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly wow. right. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know if there's anything else you guys want to hit on, or uh, nah, dude, if you uh, got any other questions. But I've uh, just been enjoying the hell out of this. Like I've just yeah, been listening. Story, this is awesome. Cool. The stories go on forever. Good. Um, <laughs> hold on a second. I get, look at my cheat sheet here because I just tried to write down some stories. Let me see. If, oh, wait a second. I've missed the best story. I can't oh. believe I missed the story. Go back. Yeah. <laughs> thank, 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 thank goodness for, for my – You saved the my, best for last, right? <laughs> so yeah. I told you about the, about the Sanzini in Madagascar. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I'd go on to the – and they were French-speaking. The government was still French, and I had, had had the paperwork. But I had to go through Berlin to get back to the U.S. Okay. Well, this was in the very early days of screening. And there were there were no metal detectors. There were no x-rays. There were no wands. There was nothing. And then the, the transit passengers were being screened by the German military. So there I was with a carry-on full of snakes. And I had been to a herb conference in Germany a year before, and I'd gotten a tutor to teach me some basic German so I could just be polite to my hosts. And so it comes my turn, and there's this German military guy, and I open my bag, and I say, Ich habe Schlangen here. I have snakes here. Okay. So the guy says, ah, Schlangen, Schlangen. And they were in, you know, the tradition was that we'd swipe the pillowcases from the hotels wherever we stayed. Right. Carry our snakes. <laughs> right. So I had these Sanzini in these pillowcases. So the German officer pokes the pillowcase and it jumps. And oh, and he calls his buddies, hey, Mirzi, come over here and look, Schlangen. So the other German guys come over and they're poking the bags and the bags are jumping and they're laughing. One guy says to me, is das Gift? Gift. I didn't know that word, gift. He's asking me if, it, he's asking me if it's a gift. So yeah, that's a skip. It doesn't mean that. It means poison. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> oh hell oh, breaks loose! and they're trying to pull up. I don't know what was going on. What do they do? Oh God! <laughs> the guy behind me, the guy behind me, taps me on the shoulder. He says, "You just told that guy they're poison." 
Oh. <laughs> I had to open the bag and I take. I had to literally open the put my finger in the snake's mouth. And oh all wow! These people waiting to board. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy says, "Okay, no problem. Go ahead, get on the plane." Oh, God. oh that's great. Oh my God. <laughs> that was, that was story. Let me see what else. This, the stories are so funny. And you know, you you um. Well, there's a story. This is a funny story. Yeah. Um, and it's it's only related because it was a herp trip. Okay. okay. But it was I was on my way to Australia for a conference. And I'm on the plane out over the South Pacific at night. Everybody is on the planes asleep. And they make this announcement over the public address syndrome. Is there a doctor on the plane? <laughs> Well, being a pediatrician, I usually look around to see if anybody else volunteers because as a pediatrician, there's not a whole I could do. Mm-hmm. Nobody else volunteers. I press my call button. The, the flight attendant comes over and says, doctor, doctor, please come and take a look. Take a look at uh, look at this man. So I come down with her and there's another flight attendant and there's a guy, an old guy, I mean older than me, and he's lying with his mouth open, like back on the seat, totally out. His mouth is open. His head is back. He's totally out. And his wife is sitting next to him, and she, she's trying to wake him up. And he's not moving. And she's hysterical. She's in, speaking Italian, and she's hysterical. And the other flight attendant says to me, doctor, I think he's dead. <laughs> Good. Oh, God. So I feel – and they had no equipment. They, back then, they had no equipment. Now they have a, a sealed box. You have to show them your license. You have to sign. They clip it open, the whole deal. Back then, they didn't even have a stethoscope, nothing. You know, it's pretty noisy in the plane, and it's vibrating, et cetera. So I feel for his carotid artery, no pulse. I feel for his wrist, no pulse. I turn and I say, I think you're right. I think he's dead. Uh, I said, said, is there any place we can stretch him out? She says, well, we can take him up to first class in the aisle. So I said, Okay. So the two flight attendants and I dragged this guy all the way up the aisle through the coach section and into the first class section, stretch him out on the aisle, on, on the ground. And his wife is there, and she's hysterical. And I'm looking at them. What am I going to do next? At that moment, the captain shows up. He says, well, doctor, what's the situation? I said, I think he's dead. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so the captain says, well, should we land the plane? In the water? We're 35,000 feet up over the Pacific Ocean. What do you mean land the plane? I don't want to tell you how to do your job, dude, but there's nowhere to <laughs> yeah, right. so I says, I said, uh, yeah, land the plane. Sure. So, <laughs> so he gets on the public addresses. Says, well, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a pretty strong headwind. We're a little low in fuel. Nothing to be concerned about, but we're going to land uh, land a little early, pick up some fuel, and then go on to our destination in, uh, in, in, in uh, Melbourne. So he starts the plane. It takes you know, 30, 45 minutes to get down when you're up that high. And he starts uh, – the plane starts starts uh, uh, slowly going down. And I think we are landing on Noumea or New Caledonia. And the plane touches ground, close to a landing. The guy suddenly wakes up. He jumps up. He says, oh, what's going on? Oh, where am I? What am I doing here? Hey, what's going on here? What? He, he's lying in the aisle. He must have taken, who knows, he might, sleeping medication, maybe alcohol, maybe both. He was totally out cold. Right. And he just bolts upright. 
he's all of a sudden he wakes up and he finds he's in an aisle you know? <laughs> with a bunch of people staring at him. Yeah, everybody's looking at him. He's lying on the ground. Now is it? He woke up. Wow. He landed at Numea. Landed. Everybody goes into the gift shop, gets T-shirts and stuff, gets back on the plane, and oh, oh that's shit. great. Wow. <laughs> Oh man! Well, at least he didn't die. That's yeah, that, that's a good thing. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that would have taken us a lot longer. Yeah. But yeah. you know, I, I was waiting for the captain to come around and say, "What kind of doctor are you, are you anyway?" <laughs> but, but he didn't. He he, he didn't. He didn't. Oh, so. that's great. Jeez, oh, man. That's yeah. awesome. Well, and you got okay. to, you got to do the whole thing from TV where it's like, "Is there a doctor in the plane?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've had that, I've had that, I've had that three, three times, oh and uh, you know, I, ne- I never want to be the first one. <laughs> one time they, gave, one time they gave me free miles, twenty five thousand miles. That time, you know, that time I got nothing, maybe because the guy wasn't really. Oh yeah. One time they gave me a putter. <laughs> okay. Which I threw away. I want to stick, well, cut the head off of it. Turn it into a snake hook. That's there you go. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. That's right. That's right. That's right. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. I mean, oh, man, I, I could listen I, to these day, stories forever. All day. Yeah. This is, this is the funny thing is every every story reminds me of another one, you know, and and and, and um, that you know is. When I, I was asked to give a talk at, uh, I think it was the West Texas Herb Society, one of the Texas Herb Societies, oh, not too long ago, three years ago, and I really didn't want to. And they say, well, you know, I, I said, I don't really, I, I don't, I don't have any snakes. I don't keep snakes anymore. And they said, well, how about talking about the good old days? Yeah. And you know how it used to be. And I said, well, that's a good idea. So I called it the Golden Age of Reptiles. <laughs> Nice. And you know, and, and I have, and I save priceless. I was, I was collecting priceless. I actually put ads in some of the Herp magazines to get priceless. And I was going to do a book uh, with Jim Murphy on the history of uh, of herpetoculture based on priceless. You know, looking at the early prices where you could buy, I mean, you could buy indigo snakes for twenty five dollars. Oh I mean, you could God. buy six, seven foot Western Diamondbacks for you know twenty bucks. Wow! Uh, and everything was mail order. I mean, it was in the mail. So um, when they started clamping down on mail order reptiles back when I was a teenager, uh, you had to get them by what was called REA or Railway Express Agency. You literally had to go to the train station to pick up shipments because there was no UPS, there was no FedEx, and they couldn't send them by mail anymore. So you had to go down to the train station to pick them up. And then then they had to do – Delta, and now they do FedEx and stuff like that. But yeah, 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 Jeez. yeah. That was new. I mean, it's only in recent years that FedEx and and, and uh, will take reptiles. Yeah, and fish. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. It it, it has changed. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Well, I'm I'm still awed by the I'm still awed by the technology. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I I got I bought that herp stack. Yeah. Yeah. I have yet to figure it out. <laughs> I've emailed them. I've talked to them on the phone. I've talked to Giovanni. Uh, uh, um, and I gave up. It's sitting on the floor somewhere. I, I finally gave up. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and you now, made out with it without it before. I'll send it to you. Yeah, I, can, I can always use another one. I got like 12. <laughs> I'll send it to you. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I have wow. all the models. And now they, 
now they're getting ones to connect to your phone and all this fun stuff. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, this is the Herbstat. This is the Herbstat too. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, you can have it. Just, uh, <laughs> some, uh, yeah. I I said, you know what? I have I have I'm using my whole system is runway individual timers. There you go. Okay. You know, the lights come on, the lights go off. I don't have it. You know, one light will come on, the other light's off, then that switches around, and then the center light is on for a while. So it's constantly changing, yeah. constantly changing. And the fountains come on, the fountains go off. You know, it's, it's that's, that's hey, awesome. whatever almost, works. Back, it works yeah. almost back to what I had, you know, twenty five years ago. <laughs> just, just set that back up again. <laughs> just, yep. God. Oh, work exactly. then. Yeah. yeah. Yep. 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 I mean, I, I, like I said, I can't, I can't thank you enough for coming and spending a couple hours of time and sharing your stories. And, uh, you know, I thank you so much. And, yeah, uh, I know incredible. the listeners are gonna, they're going to love this. They're yeah. going to love this. It's a lot of fun. And, 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 you know, I haven't had anybody to listen to these stories, uh, for a long time. And, and when you start when you start telling them then the next thing you know you start remembering the other ones and it just wow. keeps uh, if you're looking if you for come up with more book, stories I you mean, just send me a message yeah. and uh i'm back on talk to some more or if you're talking All right. another book of yeah, just stories from dr ross i'd read the hell out of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the ones that i thought were um that i couldn't tell yeah Oh yeah, those are fun. I, 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 I found that you really can tell them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really can. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, nothing's off limits here. Nothing. That's right. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you know, if if all of a sudden you, you one story leads to another one, and next thing you know, you have ten more stories. Well, another, well, another episode. That's fine. We <laughs> send me a message. Always we'll need another episode. You know, it's. I, I started this uh, series, the Herp History, is, is similar to what you were saying uh, earlier when you're going to say you're going to write a book uh, based off the price list and stuff. Because mm-hmm. I want to talk to the people that uh, you know more or less founded you know what we have today, um, and I think that uh, it's important that people understand the difference between. You know, you know what it was like back then to what it is today, and 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 how it's become what it's become, and um, yeah, and pay honor to to guys like yourself that uh, have paved the way. You know, so hats but, off you know, to my, you. <laughs> my my interest my interest dating back to my medical school days was that I I didn't like what I had seen in the in the in the exotic uh, animal trade, right? Uh-huh. And, and what I hope that I have accomplished over the years is to is to reduce the predation on exotic reptiles by allowing the industry of the ornamental reptiles to develop. Right. And there are so many advantages to buying a, a reptile that has been captive bred. The last talk I gave at the mm-hmm. IHS meetings was on was on the, was on the domestication of, of, of animals and mm-hmm. how that process took place with uh, primarily cows and cattle and, and with dogs. And one of the, there's some, some very obvious things. One is that as you go through successive generations, the animals begin to breed at a younger age. So I found early on that pythons wouldn't breed until they were about three years old. But by the time I had gotten out of reptiles, people were breeding Burmese pythons at about a year and a half 
or two years. And of course, I received an award for being one of the first people to breed Burmese pythons. Now there's a bounty on them. Yeah. Yeah. The the other the other phenomenon is that of course they'll eat foods that they're not normally uh, accustomed to, and they thrive on foods that they would never find in the wild. There was a period of time when Missouri was making a processed uh, snake food. It was a pelleted snake food, and it actually worked, uh, but people just couldn't handle giving giving pellets to snakes. Right. Uh, and of course, the other very important and obvious thing is that they're used to being handled by humans. So you don't have to. I used to try to explain to people. You know, they would say my snake is tame. Well, it, okay, but it's still a wild animal. Mm-hmm. You you cannot assume that it's never going to bite, and you also cannot cannot say that it enjoys contact with you. Uh, it's tame because it's adjusted to being handled, but it's not domesticated. Well, now they are domesticated, and although I would not. I would not feel comfortable in saying that they enjoy human contact. They certainly tolerate it with no with no fear. Sure. And what's what could be better than having a snake that eats frozen food and you can handle anytime you want, as opposed to a wild animal <laughs> that will bite, and will not can. eat in captivity, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. You yeah. know, I watch animals go six months or a year without eating after being imported because they just could never acclimate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it's my hope that the numbers of, of imported reptiles is somewhat less because I have made it possible for people to own domesticated reptiles. Um, I once did a study on the numbers of, of uh, boas, boas, baby boas imported into the U.S. I used the that infamous form that the wildlife importers had to use. I can't remember the nem- name of it at this point. But I found that in w- the one year I studied, about 200,000 baby boas have been imported. Mm-hmm. Wow. So if you, do, if you do the math, if you figure that everybody – that in five years, there's a million. So pretty soon, you know, one out of th- 300 people is going to ha- – and then they grow up. They get big. So where are they now? What happened to them all? Right. And, and so it was pretty easy to do the math. Within five years, about 95% of them were dead. And, of course, that was every year the same thing happened. Every year, a couple of hundred thousand became imported. Mm-hmm. And I began thinking, how long can this can, can this last? How long can it uh, be perpetual to, to, to have captive bred reptiles and wild imports? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that you've accomplished that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. In a small way. Yeah. Job well done. So. <laughs> I can sleep better tonight. There you go. Yes. Well, again, this has been uh, an awesome time for me and Eric and for the, the listeners out here. Uh, we're, we're definitely up for a round two if you want to come back. I mean, that's, that's no problem. And, uh, all right. you know, and I'll be first in line to get the book if you want to start writing all these stories down. Because I'll just, you know, I say, like, have at it. So, but this has been great. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to throw out there to kind of to, to everybody or uh, as an ending kind of a thing? Anything you want to toss back out there? The one thing that the one thing that kept happening with their funny stories, but you kind of you kind of need the hard copy was that I would find that for some reason I'd get picked up by a newspaper reporter after in, in an airport. I mean, it happened three or four times that um, either coming through customs um, or let's see, I told you about that one. 
Um, so when I was in in Singapore, I had spent um, spent about a week there visiting reptile dealers and put together a collection of all kinds of things, and and. Had them in my uh, Tomistema, saltwater crocs, uh, blood python, and and I had them in two big carry-ons. And um, a woman came up to me and asked me if I was Dr. Ross. Somebody tipped her off, and it was probably just one of the dealers. And she said, oh, uh, can I do an interview? So I said, oh, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> right. So she interviewed me. And then took a picture of me um, with a holding a blood python, and the interview was like just you know a few questions, and that was it. So about a week later, uh, I got this a letter from one of the reptile dealers, and it was an article in the paper that had been published with my photograph in the Trinidad newspaper. I mean the um, the Singapore newspaper. And it was this picture of me holding the blood python, and this woman had totally made up the story. <laughs> it was all it was all nonsense. You know, how I was a doctor, and I was going to be studying snakes, and the snakes are the most important thing in my life, and and uh, I would die. If I would I would die if I had to give up the snakes. And you know, on and on and on. You know, <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, a month uh, in in his in this little tiny village of Leticia. And, um, of course, I was there for herps, but I collected a bunch of things. I got um, uh, Brazilian rainbow boas and the, the main – and let's see, what else did I have? The main, the main thing, the most kind of interesting thing was I, 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 I found a kinkajou. So anyway, I, while I was – you know, so I put together this collection of reptiles and the kinkajou. And I wanted to stop in Trinidad on the way back, and I had two good friends there who were the famous Booz brothers, Hans and Julius Booz. And Hans and Julius Booz were the um, the local uh, wildlife experts. So um, Hans was the curator at work at the zoo at the time, mm. and they were the local herpetologists on the island. So I, I, I sent Hans a telegram, told him I wanted to come come through with all these reptiles and just go on, spend a few days and go on back to the U.S. And he said, the reptiles are fine. I can manage that, but don't bring any mammals. <laughs> so I thought, oh, boy, well, I'm not giving up this kinkajou. So it was a real sweet animal. Um, <laughs> and so I had a bunch of sample drugs that I had gotten at a – uh, pharmacy convention where and the medical students would go to would go to these things because they'd hand out free drugs all the time and i had some valium which was a pretty new drug back then so i thought i'm gonna i've got to find a way to get this kink at you back so and i had bought a a ceramic uh it was a it was a vase a pitcher it's a souvenir so i decided i was going to try to sedate the kink at you with some valium and hide it inside this vase. So I did. So so I show up I show up at customs and I and I announce that I've got all these reptiles and the vase was in my carry-on. And 
the, so the guy says, well, you can't, you, you know, you can't bring all these animals in there. So I said, well, the zoo director, the zoo. So Hans, Hans Boo showed up and convinced the customs people to let me through. And mm-hmm. uh, that he said, well, you know, he, the customs inspector said, if they can't stay in Trinidad. He's no, don't worry. You know, the zoo will be responsible, which was fine. And mm-hmm. I got the kinkajou through I went with, with, with no problem. And so I spent oh, three or four days with, with Hans and, and his brother Julius and went back onto the U.S., and did the same thing going back into the U.S. Um, declared all the snakes. I just had no idea how they would react. The customs would react to the mammals, to the kinkajou. So I did the same thing with the kinkajou and had her in my carry-on and just walked right through. <laughs> wow. Oh my but on the, way, on, on, the way, on the way in, hmm. a newspaper photographer happened to be there. And interviewed me and did the whole thing all over again and took a picture of me and, and Hans and we, each of us holding snakes and showed up in the Trinidad times the next morning. I still have all these clippings. And, Mm -hmm. um, once again, a totally wild made up story about, you know, the, the deadly animals and the the lethal, uh, you know, pythons and, or boa constrictors, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm, I, let me see if I can remember when the third one was. One was Trinidad, one was um, in, in in Singapore. No, one was yeah, one was in Singapore. Uh, can't remember offhand when the third one was, but <laughs> that was. A, I got to the point of thinking there's just always going to be a newspaper photographer hanging around waiting <laughs> somewhere. We just hunting me. Yeah, you never know. You never know what's going to show up at the airport. Right. So <laughs> let me see if there's anything left on my cheat sheets. I think those were all that I remembered. Uh, let's see. Um, you heard about the dead passenger? Yeah, <laughs> I think that. Was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. That's great. So, oh god. So all right. Well, so if I remember, if I, I, remember, mean, if, if I can remember a bunch more, you'll hear from me. But I think that. Oh those yeah, are, please, you know, they, please. Yeah. yeah. Again, thank you no. so much uh, yeah, for coming and awesome. uh, spending a couple hours with us. And uh, yeah, I, I. Yeah, it's my pleasure, guys. It's lots of fun, and I love, you know, I love telling the stories. And and what's even more fun is, you know, remembering the ones that I've forgotten. Um, <laughs> hope, hopefully, there'll be more to come. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, All right, great talking to you guys. I hope we get to meet in yeah, person. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. If you if you want that herbstad, contact me. You got it. I'll have Eric send you I myself. Yeah. I got. You know, it's got the probes. The whole. I just gave up. I said, you know, this is. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a. I'm, I'm not a technophobe. <laughs> but this, this would, I mean, I, I don't want to write to them anymore and just you know demonstrate my ignorance. That's fine. Um. Just uh, yep. just sign it for me before you send it. All right. <laughs> uh, you got it. Do you want the? Does it have to say woman, woman, or woman? Well, either way, you both. Either you one's good. Yeah, you got yeah I'll, I'll use it, it. for my yeah. womas. Okay. Excellent. So, Excellent. All right. Thanks all right. a lot. I'm talking all right. You bet. My yep. pleasure. Yep. Bye bye. Okay. Uh, okay, Owen. We'll close out and uh, yeah. End it up. Yep. <clears throat> All right. Thanks again. My pleasure. Yep. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Ross.